song of love and sacrifice, a ballad of two strangers thrown together to fight a common foe. Arden's performance was stirring as always. Her insights into the human mind were poignant and even a little unnerving. The cantina was captivated by her and her band as they sang about the woman from Paradise Island and a doctor named Harleen Quinzel and her tragic love. Hi, I'm John. And I'm Matthew. And we are the DC Detectives. It's our job to go back through the annals of DC history and chronicle the evolution of all your favorite heroes from start to every reversible finish. Uh, We're very lucky to have Arden back with us this time uh, to talk about Steve Trevor and Wonder Woman and all the fun positivity that is between the two of them as opposed to Lois and Clark. Yes, I'm super excited to be here. Excellent. Um, Again, thank you for coming back Mm -hmm. and taking the time to talk with us about this. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So first, right off the bat, this is almost a reverse Lois and Superman situation where the woman is the superpowered one and the man is the normal one, but the superpowered one is still kind of chasing after the normal human, but the normal human is in love with the superpowered one and also kind of dating the alter ego. Kind of. It's been, mm. we've, we've had one bit where that occurs. Right. So Steve Trevor is found on Paradise Island and Wonder Woman immediately falls in love with him after taking care of him. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, they both have a nice, healthy respect for each other. Wonder Woman almost looks down on Steve's endeavors in almost childish fashion. Like, she kind of goes like, oh, Steve. Like, whenever he goes after some objective or is really headstrong about something. And Steve mm-hmm. is just in love with everything Wonder Woman does. And whenever he gets the credit for something that was clearly Wonder Woman's doing, he always says it was her. He never takes the credit. That's nice of him. Right. <laughs> we, we like to think of Steve as the healthiest male individual Per the time period. that's uh, That seems fair. Yeah. <laughs> he may actually be the healthiest, like, character in this entire, just everything that we've covered thus far, including Superman and Batman. Right. And the interesting thing is, he doesn't ignore Diana, Wonder Woman's alter ego, mm-hmm. to the point where he, he actually asks her out. He asks her out on two dates. He goes to dinner with her once. And then we see him and her at dinner again when the original Diana Prince's husband finds her. And they go to the circus together. And they go to the circus together because mm-hmm. the circus is super romantic. Of course, as long as nobody gets killed there, right? Right. Well, <laughs> well what we want to uh, bring to your attention and have your take on is a relationship where two individuals are highly capable, almost equals, minus the fact that Steve doesn't have superpowers. The two of them kind of dance around being in a relationship, and Wonder Woman is the one that kind of puts the brakes on everything. Hmm. Usually citing, she can't do this because of Themyscira or Amazon Law. Mm. Yeah, and I remember us discussing in the last episode about how there are so many, uh, you know, either superheroes or mutants or people with abilities who feel that their abilities 
are what keeps them out of being in a relationship, right? We saw that um, with Hulk and Widow uh, in, mm-hmm. in Ultron last summer. We've seen that um, uh, even even when we were talking about Clark Kent, Superman, and Lois Lane, um, the idea that he does want to be with her, but he has a real hard time letting her in on his secret, right? So with Wonder Woman, it seems like there's a similar thing. It's like, I really love this man, but is this my my destiny? Is this my path? Or, you know, do I have to abide by the laws that the universe has set for me and uh you know i have a greater duty to uh to myself and to my tribe right and what we find interesting is that this is written by someone who is supposed to be an extreme feminist for his time Mm -hmm. who is married to a huge uh feminist and suffragette and that doesn't seem very feminist to prevent yourself from loving someone who respects you a lot and treats you very well because your mom told you not to. Right. Absolutely. But we also have to remember that this was a very different time in feminism and that back then uh, there, there was more of, I mean, I mean, even today we're still looking at, we're still fighting for the ability of women to have satisfying love lives and also have satisfying careers. You know, we, it's 2016 and we're, we're pretty much, you know, we, we pretty much accepted that these two things can coexist together. But every once in a while, someone has to come out and say, no, we can have both of these things. And it's still a reminder. So back then, I think that there was a lot of question about like, well, if a woman is going to be all these things, does that prevent her from also having love, from having a home, you know, from her her duties as a housewife or whatever? And that was a bigger question back then. So we always have to look at things especially feminism within the last hundred years, we always have to look at it in context, right? Because there are certain things that Jesus, even, even just 10, 20, 30 years ago are things that would absolutely not fly at all today. That would be called out really harshly across the entire blogosphere. Um, that back then was progressive just because it was in a different context. Right. One other thing that I find kind of interesting and I'll sort of throw into the mix. These stories that we've been reading are explicitly rooted in the World War II era. Specifically, uh, Wonder Woman herself is introduced December of 1941 and is is explicitly sent to Man's World to help save America. I think the line is the last uh, free nation on Earth, something along those lines, which kind of does a little bit of a disservice to Britain, but uh, okay. But I almost wonder if there's still a little bit of that I keep wanting to say collectivist feel, but not quite that, but that sense that this is somebody who is not just do not like Superman where you're going to be a superhero for the rest of your life. It's you have a specific task, which is help save America from World War II and the war and then see what goes from there. Like maybe the the exceptions that may be written into Amazon law to allow for her to pursue a loving relationship, maybe can't be negotiated yet because they're in the middle of wartime? Sure, yeah. And I think we see that across a lot of superhero romances where it's like their their battle uh, comes to the forefront. Mm. You know, it's like, well, we, we're in love with each other, but we have a greater mission at, at hand. And maybe when this all settles down, then we can go retire and have babies, but we have to save the world first. We definitely see a lot of that. That's actually a very good point to make that comparison. Thanks. <laughs> And that was, that was literally, uh, you know, um, that was literally what, uh, you know, what, what happened with Hulk and Widow 
And it was like, you know, that was what was so tragic about that movie, too, is that it seemed like Widow had this window where Bruce Banner was ready to be with her and she was so happy about it. But it's like, well, great timing, Bruce, like because we really we have to we have to save the world first and then we can go be together, you know, and that seems so clear. And then something happens in that battle where, you know, where where Bruce decides, oh, no, I'm. I, I'm, I'm clearly too dangerous. No one can be around me. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm giving up and it's like, wow, way to put the one window of, you know, the possibility of your relationship right in the middle of the final battle of the movie. So I think Matt, you had a point that you really wanted to bring up uh, more, a general topic change yeah, if we're at that point. So this is, like I said, this is a little bit of a topic change, but it's still mm-hmm. something that is squarely within your wheelhouse. And this is also something where I know just enough to like the, the archetypal line is I know just enough to get myself into trouble, but hopefully not. Like uh, I think the, this is a situation where I know that I know that little. So I tend to react very conservatively in some ways in this. So Mm -hmm. if you don't mind, I would like to get into the subject of specifically BDSM and Wonder Woman. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of history with that, with the, with the author, apparently. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's been a while since I've it's been a while since I've I've read about it. So, uh I'm not I'm not sure exactly how much I remember, but I do remember that, you know, uh, her being in peril so often was absolutely a way for him to bring uh his love of rope bondage into uh, a greater consciousness. Yeah. There's there's some of that. I have a one spanking of, too. Well, that too. Uh, one of one of the images that I have from the one of the visual companions is titled BDSM Jesus. <laughs> My it's, goodness! It's something to behold. It is. It is very definite. Uh, there are a lot of pieces where it's like, oh, okay, I kind of recognize that style of garb, and that's the other thing is I also don't have a great sense of where the kink movement was in the 1940s, but. Certainly, I can see parts of it developing. But one of the things that specifically stood out to me were, I think I'm thinking of it as a threefold concern. Uh, the thing that stands out is that it's not just the the villains putting her in uh, BDSM-tinged situations. It's not just a uh, woman in peril. You also have some situations where the heroes themselves are the ones putting villains in those situations in, unfortunately, in ways that feel like uh, sexual humiliation as a weapon against supervillains. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I can see that. Absolutely. I think there are several stories where, you know, it ends up with the the villain being all, you know, curses foiled again. And it is, there's a um, humiliation to it. And I remember, Actually, I can't think of any specific examples, but I do remember feeling like, oh, that's, I feel embarrassed for that person. Like, that's not how their end should, should be, <laughs> considering well, how powerful they are. The one that really stands out to me and frankly creeps me out is mm-hmm. that uh, point where there's a Japanese uh, princess who has been like a, a poison doctor who gets caught and... Uh, is made to tell the location of like a hidden base uh, by Wonder Woman just, hey, I'm not afraid to die, but you just threatened to, quote, I believe more or less, quote, strip me naked and march me to Washington. Yeah. I can't handle, uh, I can't lose face like that. I can't be humiliated like that. 
Death Before Dishonor, uh, I guess I need to tell you what where the base is. Mm. And that kind of, especially coming from a hero towards a villain, that uh, non-consensual kink really creeps me out. Right. Well, we do have to remember one thing, which is that these stories are fiction. And mm -hmm. um, because they're fiction, they're fantasy. And a lot of people's fantasies involve non-consent. And that doesn't mean that we want to practice those things non-consensually in real life. But I saw this a lot as a member of the BDSM community. I saw this a lot around Fifty Shades when Fifty Shades mm -hmm. came out. And there were movements, hashtags, protests outside the theaters from people dressing up in their BDSM gear saying Fifty Shades of Grey is abuse and Fifty Shades of Grey is not kink. And they're right about that because Fifty Shades was not a manual on how to do BDSM correctly, but it was fantasy material. And we have to remember that, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to read this book and Christian Grey, um, stalks his love interest after she's told him not to contact him again, uh, not to contact her again. So therefore, uh, I'm going to do that with my real life love interest. I'm going to stalk her even though she told me to go away. And obviously that would be incredibly bad, but let's say you have a couple who are together who are interested in role playing. And the, she says, you know, I find this idea really hot. He comes to her bedroom window and, and surprises her, and, uh, and overwhelms her and, and whatever. So um, I'll tell you what, for the next three nights in a row, I'm going to be at home at this time and I give you my consent to come to my window and show up in my bedroom and overwhelm me. And that's playing out a fantasy. So I want to, and this is something I've been talking about a lot in general lately. Um, you know, we, we also are talking a lot about Harley Quinn and the Joker lately. Oh my God. And if you do an episode on Harley Quinn and the Joker, please, 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 like, bring me back to talk about that. Oh, that absolutely. So much. I'm actually legit it's, down to do that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, me too. That's, that's awesome. But one thing that's so important about Harley Quinn and the Joker is that people are saying like, Hey, um, this is an abusive relationship. And in fact, there is someone pointed out even a frame in the comics, um, that is Canon, uh, where Harley says to another villain who's attacking her, like, um, you know what? I just got out of an abusive relationship. I'm not really in the mood to be told what to do right now. And that's when she, like, picks herself up and kicks the other guy's ass or whatever. So people are like, look, Harley said it herself. It was an abusive relationship. Let's stop romanticizing Harley's, you know, Harley's relationship with the Joker. But the thing is, like, it's fiction. I don't think anyone is saying just because... I don't, I don't think anyone is looking at the Harley Joker relationship as a model that they want to copy exactly for their own relationship because they're also people who go out and kill people and steal things, you know, like Harley says, we're bad guys. That's what we do, you know? So to take, to take something like, um, you know, uh, sexual exploitation in the form of, uh, you know, something that resembles kink, but is, um, but is really, uh, assault and kidnapping or rape or whatever. It's like, if we don't allow our villains to be villains, you know, the same thing with, with the Joker in, in the killing joke and, and what Alan Moore says about that. He's like, yeah, what he did was fucked up. It was wrong. But if we don't allow our villains to be bad guys, then we're not going to have very good stories. So what I would advise people who are looking to explore BDSM to do is like, if something turns you on, if something, if it involves like an element of non-consent, 
you know, talk about it with your partner and say, how can we do this in a healthy way? How can I give you my consent to do these things to me? And that's what safe words are for. You know, this, the safe word is, is the thing where it's like, I want to be able to say, no, no, I don't want this. Don't do this to me. Please stop. I'll do anything. I, I guess I have to tell you where the base is or, or wherever. And, and you have your partner not stop. And then you say cornflakes and they're like, oh, sorry, sweetie, are you okay? <laughs> you know? So right. I think it's important to, um, to realize that, um, our fiction is where we get a lot of our, um, our shadow out a lot of our darker impulses and mm-hmm. anyone who's going around pretending that they don't have those impulses is, um, well, I have a lot to say about that for sure, <laughs> but, um, that's where we get that shit out and it's, it's okay for us to do it as long as we, um, as long as we, you know, everyone's cool with it and everyone's consenting to it. It's fine to use it as, as fodder for fantasy and fodder for, for role play and, and consensual non-consent. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I think what it comes down to is awareness and self-knowledge. You do tend to get those people who go like, oh, my relationship with my boyfriend is like Harley and the Joker. Mm. And you have to go, in what sense? Yep. <laughs> and I've met, I want to say, three different people across my entire life who have said that seriously about their relationships. One guy was actually wearing a Harley and Joker t-shirt when he said that. Mm-hmm. And this was not at a con, just at somebody's house hanging out. And I never want to like, I never want to yuck someone's yum. You know, yeah. that's not my, my business. Yeah. I have been in that relationship. I have a hundred percent been in that relationship. You know, when I was in my early through mid twenties, um, I was in a, a 24-7 dominant submissive relationship with um, a, a rockabilly ex-paratrooper who owned a dungeon. And uh, and it it gets difficult because you, you have this language around BDSM where you're like, no, this is okay because it's our kink. No, this is okay because it's our kink. And then I, I'm looking back at it and I'm, you know, I'm writing a memoir about that time or, or I, I was, I had to stop because I kept getting so triggered because I realized, oh no, that was abuse. We were just calling it kink, you know, and, uh, it's something really to look at and to explore. And it's, it's, it's hard because there's no easy answer. And you can say like, I'm okay with this. I'm okay with this. This is fine. Um, and for me, I never thought that the kink was part of the problem. I, I understood that our vanilla relationship was rocky in a lot of ways. Like our, our relationship relationship was rocky. Um, but I, I failed to see where those things really crossed over. So absolutely, that's a super important thing to look at. And um, it does. It just takes self-awareness. And I think you have to just come away from, you know, come away from the relationship for a moment and just say, how is this making me feel? Am I constantly miserable? Um, or is this fun and playful and I'm, I'm kept on my toes, but it's a way it's in a way that shows that my partner really cares for me, you know, is he's someone is creating, um, Oh, this is actually how I first learned about Max. Our friend Max Landis Mm -hmm. is someone retweeted onto my timeline, the four pages of script that he wrote, um, as a warm up where Harley and the Joker are talking and the Joker basically says, you know, Harley, I think you haven't been yourself lately. Like we need to talk about our, our relationship. And Harley's like relationship. And he's like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm your, I'm your boyfriend, of course. And Harley's like, what, what are you even talking? But, but you just tried to kill me and you did this. And what about all these times? And, you know, and Joker's like, no offense, Harleen, but I, 
I thought you were into this. And this idea that the Joker the whole time has been committing so hard to his role as her, you know, her owner, her daddy, her sadist, that he took it so far that she actually didn't know that he was doing it all for her as, as an act of love. And I just like, I just fell in love with those four pages of dialogue. And that's when I looked up Max and I was like, you wrote these four pages and I need to buy you coffee for it. You know, <laughs> like this is just, this is just incredible. This whole idea that, that the whole time he's just doing this, um, for her, you know, and I've had relationships like that too, where, um, where someone, you know, does tap into their dark side for me, um, as a gift, you know, and I've never felt endangered by it. I've never felt like there wasn't a time I could say stop or whatever. Um, but unfortunately, what did happen in 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 that the most recent relationship I had of that kind anyway was that um, uh, the person I was seeing was not comfortable with his dark side and uh, and ultimately left the relationship because he was like, I can't I can't handle that. This is me. I can't handle um, the fact that I have such an affinity for this, you know. So so can you you know, can you and in that case, I'd been like, I wish you would just recognize this is OK, that this is play, that this is fine. Um, that, that actually like your abandonment of me because you're not willing to work out your own issues around your shadow is far, far closer to abuse than the fact that you want to punch me in the head during sex, which I'm totally cool with. And if I wasn't cool with it, I would say stop. And I know you would stop, you know, like, right. so yeah, it, it gets complicated. <laughs> it, it goes back to self-awareness. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, how is it making you feel? How is it making your partner feel? And is everything, is everyone cool? You know, those are a lot of very good tools for the people who are in the kink community. And I'm hopeful that everybody who's listening to this, whether you are part of the kink community or not, uh, please follow that advice, uh, that kind of open communication, that kind of self-awareness, please. Like that is something that you can absolutely take into every part of your lives. Please make everybody's life better. One thing I want to <laughs> yeah. circle back around to, because this was, this is the, the, the reason that I brought it up. And it's a thing that I've grappled with that question of being able to separate the fantasy from the real. The thing that I was, that I've been scared of is exactly what you brought up. That idea of 50 shades that even, especially for the people who aren't already kinksters, uh, they will watch this and view it and get the wrong idea and take the wrong behaviors out into the world and either uh, take specifically like those kinds of stalking or inappropriate uh, personal boundary behaviors or even just, hey, okay, I'm into the the play aspect and not take the right behaviors and not do the not do the pre-scene negotiation, not really uh, – do the prep work on making sure that the materials are good, not checking that circulation works. And for me, the, the key concern is because the, because there aren't many kink positive stories or even just stories that really pull in kink in general, does something that doesn't, does a story that focuses just on the fantasy and not on the aftercare and the prep work and the negotiation, does that set, uh, a script out that people then follow because they don't have that other information. And I'm really curious to know just from what you've seen in the aftermath of 50 shades, especially are, are people who are joining the scene being safer uh, or still being safe? Or are there people who are act, well hurting people because they only took part of the lesson of the community and didn't well do the research and didn't listen to people. Well, I think 
one thing we have to do is zoom out a little bit and look at not just our current culture, but all of history and human sexuality. And people are always going to do what they're going to do. They're going to follow their darker impulses. They're going to, you know, kink has been around a long time. And now more than ever, uh, what Fifty Shades did do is it brought the conversation to the surface and allowed people... Um, people like me, you know, educators, people like, um, you know, like here in LA, we have, uh, the stock room that, you know, stock room university that does classes in New York, there's purple passion. There's the oil and Spiegel society. Um, now people who read 50 shades and are interested can have these places to go. And these places don't need to be nearly as underground as they once were because everyone is admitting that like, Oh, this is kind of a thing that people do. Oh, it's a little kinky, but it's not a reason that we're going to fire anyone from their job, you know, um, in at least most major cities or, uh, you know, or take custody of their kids away, which was not always the case. And even, you know, 10 years ago when I was practicing, even just a decade ago was a very different time in our culture. So we have to consider that we have more resources now available than we ever have before. And if someone was going to read 50 shades and attempt things the wrong way. That person 50 years ago was probably going to read story of O and attempt things the wrong way. And at least now we have places where people can go and learn to educate themselves and learn to do things properly. And I would say that if someone is not doing that and is making mistakes, you know, uh, it's like, they were probably not going to educate themselves anyway if they're willing to go out and do things and have results where people get hurt and not check in where that hurt is happening and be like, whoa, what did we do wrong? How do we do this right? Let's go learn about it now. If someone is okay hurting someone, they're not going to seek out the resources anyway, and they were probably going to hurt someone regardless of whether Fifty Shades was out or anyway. I think we have to give people more credit for having a conscience and for having an idea of what hurts and what doesn't. And whenever you do something like that, I just, I just don't see a good hearted person going into a scene like that saying, I want to explore pleasure with my partner. Um, and then fucking it up so badly and not being willing to learn from that mistake. You know, we do make mistakes and, and, and sure, like that is absolutely, yeah, you want to get as much education as possible for the, but the people like, there's still going to people be people like John Gomeshi, for example, the, the Canadian radio host who used BDSM as an excuse to essentially uh, both physically and emotionally abuse the women in his life. And like, oh, well, you can't handle me or I'm too dominant for you or I'm this or I'm that or I'm bad news. I'm dangerous and I'm going to, you know, and who ended up assaulting a whole bunch of women. And he could very easily have, I mean, shit, I know places in Canada where you can go to learn about kink. You know, if he's like, oh, I'm a dominant and you can't handle me. Well, then buddy, go to some classes, go to some, like, I, shit, I know doms in Canada you could go talk to. Go meet some women who want to be dominated, who want what you got. Don't use this as an excuse and say like, well, if you don't let me abuse you, you're just clearly not submissive enough for me. And I've certainly had, you know, guys try to say that to me. I've had guys try to say it to my friends. And, and, you know, we're smarter than that. We know to call them out on their bullshit. The point is that people out there who were not going to have those resources, like they, they weren't going to go learn anyway. You know, I think 
fantasy, like a novel like Fifty Shades of Grey can't make a person go out and assault a person unless they're really, really dumb and unwilling to learn from their mistakes. Okay. That, that is good to hear because that's one of the things that's sort of turned around in my head is whether, uh, especially just recently, my concern about uh, humanity as a whole. Uh, and it's good to hear that, especially from what you're seeing, people are being responsible with the way they're they're exploring things and that we don't have to worry about uh, what, the negative impact of Wonder Woman. Oh. But, <laughs> but, yeah, uh, I don't, I really think we owe it to ourselves to let our villains be villains and to talk, to write stories about bad shit that could happen. And if you want to throw a content warning on there, then mm-hmm. cool, which is not saying don't read this. It's just saying, hey, heads up, this has this in it, just so you know. There's never anything wrong with buckle up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's totally fine. But for us to not be able, it's like there's nothing wrong with writing a story where something happens and it's not real. And I think that there was a really amazing article um, I posted on Facebook a couple a couple weeks ago. Um, it's by a writer named Lux Alptrom. And she wrote about how everyone's saying like, oh, the Harley Joker relationship, like don't romanticize abuse. And she says, well, guess what? I was an abuse victim once too. I was in an abusive relationship. That doesn't mean that I wasn't cool and hot and sexy and funny and and kick-ass just like Harley is. Like, you can't say, don't make an aspirational character who's an abuse victim. You can root for her to get out of her relationship, absolutely. It's just, you know, looking at Harley and Joker and appreciating the good things about Harley um, it's like, it's like just because she's a, she's an abuse victim doesn't mean she can't also be a role model. In fact, right. maybe she mm-hmm. can be a role model to abuse victims to relate to and just to recognize themselves in her and say, wow, I wish she would get out of that too. And maybe, maybe I can also get out of my relationship or, or whatever. You know, it's just, it's not having an aspirational character who is an abuse victim is not the same thing as romanticizing abuse. I think that's a really mm-hmm. important distinction. Did you, did you watch the movie? Yeah, I did. I saw okay. it. Are, are okay. Are we allowed to talk about the ending? Sure, if we I feel mean, like I it. I don't okay. mind. <laughs> okay, can I be the first? So does everybody else feel the same way that I do, that the ending totally just rolled back, like, the last third of Harley's character arc? Um, well, explain explain how you think that. So this is, this is another instance where I know just enough to get myself into trouble, uh, but... It felt to me like Harley's character arc the whole way through was getting out of that relationship and sort of seeing a little bit more about it and choosing her friends and becoming stronger in that way. And then the very, very, very end, like that that sequence right before the credits uh, where uh, where someone shows up at the location and busts somebody <laughs> out. I'm, look, I'm trying. I'm trying. Yeah, uh, it, yeah. <laughs> it felt to me like that was an instance of she had she had broken out and then that she got pulled back in. And I I imagine that's a very unfortunately common occurrence, but it felt like it was like she had reached a conclusion and was launching and then the the sequel bait dragged her back in. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, she's a grown-ass woman who has to make her own decisions. And I remember saying something, you know, I recently had a there, were a... there were two people I knew in New York who were in a very toxic relationship. And I left New York, and, and I was catching up with a friend who knew them. And, and I said, yeah, whatever happened with them? Oh, they got married. I'm like, oh, God, that's so unhealthy. 
And there, and what my friend said to me was like, yeah, but you know, they love it. Like, you know, they're just going to keep doing their thing and that's what they are. And at some point I have to say to myself, that's not the kind of relationship that I would want, but you know, people are going to make their own decisions and to try, like, there's, I mean, yeah, of course they're just characters and whatever, but to, to go in and say, you know, we can root for her to leave the Joker, but at the same time, like, I didn't see anything in the film specifically that seemed so like, oh shit, she's got to get out of there. I mean, you know, she jumps into, she jumps into the vat of chemicals of her own free will. You know, there was a big thing when the trailer came out where someone was like, he pushed her, he pushed her in. And then we saw the movie and it's like, no, she jumps in and he follows after her. And that's why he's so in love with her is she's a woman who is willing to, you know, give up her life as she knows it for him, even though he's this, this freak, she's willing to go there and be with him together. So it's, it's tough to, it's really tough to say, maybe they're going to have their, maybe that's just how it's going to play out for them. And one hopes that if Harley really wants to leave, that she has the resources to do so. But she clearly at this point is not being pulled out out of her own free will. And it's one of those things where even in real life, if you get close to an abuse victim, and you tell them how much they need to leave their abuser, there may be reasons why they can't, there may be reasons why they don't want to, and they're just going to push you away because you're not able to conform to their reality at that point. So the best thing you can do is just be like, hey, if you ever need to talk, if you ever need a place to stay for the night, if you ever need a place to stay for the week, if you ever need support of any kind, I'm here for you, you know? Rather than being like, oh, fuck, you got to leave that dude, you know? Right. That's probably part of where my growing up and better understanding is is recognizing that uh, that bit of maybe there are reasons they don't want to and respecting that. I That is something I will need to keep in mind. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, sure thing. I'm not saying it's healthy necessarily. I'm just saying that people have to want to change, mm-hmm. you know? And with, with anyone, with any growth and any self-improvement and what I've found and what's been so hard for me is that the more I try to, you know, because I I am a coach, I am a healer and I'm an intuitive empath and I can see people's patterns really well. And even when I try to help them, it often backfires, you know, um, people either aren't ready to hear that. And so then you have to kind of be quiet and let them come to you and let them come when they're ready. Or even if they're on their path and they're already growing, they often don't want your help with it unless they ask you for it because mm-hmm. you're, you know, and this is, this is, this goes back to um, Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor too. You know, the idea that she has these powers and, and he doesn't, and she saves him at first. And how is that, you know, especially in a relationship that was, you know, many decades ago, um, how does that affect their, their independence, their interdependence as a couple? How does that affect, you know, his sense of masculinity around her? He's this amazing, um, this really, uh, uh, tough, badass, uh, army officer, you know, who's super capable, but then he meets the one woman who's like more capable than he is. And how is that going to affect his sense of self in the relationship? And Wonder Woman may think that she's coming around and helping him, you know, but 
and and again, I'm not as familiar with their story as I am, you know, with some of the other uh, the other ones that have been more popular in means, mainstream media lately. Um, uh, I am a geek, but but my geekery does not extend, uh, I'm sure, as far as as yours does. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, this I, is also I, 1940s comics, so. But you have to also realize that you know, from what I know as a relationship coach, if you're Wonder Woman, you know. You got to go let Steve fight his own battles. And of course, like, yeah, if his life is in danger, of course, you want to save him. Of course, you want to be there for him. But you also have to let him be the man. You know, like you have to let him come home and say, like, I fought this amazing war today and I kicked ass. If you're around him, like trying to do it for him all the time, then he's ultimately going to leave you for some little, you know, someone who doesn't threaten his masculinity. So like you got to you got to step back like i can say that from experience as a woman like you got to step back and you got to chill and it kills me sometimes it kills me because i see people that i fall in love with that i'm like i can help you like i can help you with the thing that you need right now um and uh and i've learned over the years that i can kind of offer my support i can be like hey if you ever need anything like let me know like it's always you know asking for help is a sign of strength that kind of thing but ultimately, if I make it so clear that I'm in a position to help them when they're maybe not in a position to help me, that's going to backfire. That's going to backfire hard. And I'm going to lose that person because they're going to feel bad about themselves. You know, would you say it's not just masculinity? It's also self-actualization. Yeah, I think masculinity definitely plays a part in it because we do have these these gender roles. And, and regardless of whether they're right or wrong, they are a part of our current society. Um, some of them are definitely very wrong. Like we have a lot of toxic notions about masculinity, but nonetheless, um, they're there and they're what we're contending with. But yeah, self-actualization too, because it is about, um, one of the things that I know about relationships is that if you're always choosing partners who need your help and who can't help you in return, that's your way of avoiding intimacy because you can't have intimacy with someone if you never let them take care of you in return. And I've definitely been guilty of that in the past. Like it's just a way of blocking receiving love because you choose someone whose life is in such disorder that they can't be there for you. Well, then you're not really losing anything if they leave you, you know, you didn't really put any of your baggage down. You were just doing shit for them to keep them around, you know? And that comes from a place of insecurity. And I'm, I'm not too proud to admit that I have had that insecurity in the past and that it's something that I'm really facing head on within the past like year or so. So yeah. <laughs> I don't remember where I read this line, but something about uh, giving is also a form of taking. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And taking is also a form of giving, you know? I think there's a couple instances in these stories specifically when one woman allows Steve to be Steve, but then there are a couple instances where she steps above him and says, you ain't here. I'm going to go do this thing. He obviously doesn't stay and follows after her and does his own thing, but we very rarely see her not allowing Steve to be the spy that he is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's, you know, she, and I'm sure what she thinks is like, it's just quicker if we do it this way, like just yeah. stop and ask for directions. It's fine. You know, yeah. but, but you have to use those instances really sparingly. Mm. Um, one thing that I really liked, and this is not a comic story, but it, you know, it is a, a geeky sci-fi uh, background is uh, the TV show dollhouse. Um, you ha you have this uh, high tech brothel, 
uh, with these programmable dolls, these programmable humans, you know, you sign up for a five-year tour of duty. Um, they wipe your brain, but they store it for you on backup so that in five years you get your personality back. It feels like you just fell asleep for a minute and you go about and live about, you know, live, live your life. And now you're, and now you're set for life because the work that you've been doing is so, uh, so dangerous and requires so much sacrifice. Uh, but in the middle of those five years, you essentially, you live at the dollhouse in this kind of like zoned out, um, childlike state where your brain has been wiped. And, uh, when a client needs you, they will program you with exactly the personality and skills that the job calls for. And they will, uh, you know, uh, send you out on your mission with a handler and, uh, and then bring you back when they're done. So, so you take on and you wake up and you think that you're in this persona, right? Only the, the arc of the main doll is that she slowly gains more and more awareness around what she's doing and is able to call on her different personas, um, with a consciousness that, that links all of them together. So she becomes this very powerful, self-aware person who's able to, uh, to call on all these things. And that for me was, um, that was a really great, um, archetype of dominance and submission where the submissive could still be incredibly powerful, perhaps even more powerful than the dominant, but where that wasn't seen as a threat because the dominant at the end of the day is still the owner, you know, the owner of the doll. Okay. Well, I own the doll, but the doll can kick ass for me or, you know, have amazing, fantastical sex with me or, uh, you know, do whatever I need or, or go negotiate a hostage situation or, or be whatever, or, you know, interrogate someone who's lying to me. And, uh, and that for me was really, oh my God, I saw the pilot episode and it felt like being punched in the guts, uh, because it was so, it, it was like exactly my sexuality, like a, like a visual cross section of my brain, you know, was this idea that I really want to be capable. I want to be able to kick ass. I want to be able to, to do all this amazing Wonder Woman stuff if I can. Um, but I don't want, but I want to be submissive. I want to be able to, to have that be valued as a skill rather than like, oh no, you're a threat to my masculinity. No, anything I do is just an extension now of what you're able to do because you own me, you know? But I'm also like, I've been questioning that a lot lately too. I'm been questioning everything. <laughs> Arden, thank you again uh, for coming on the show and talking to us about our favorite characters. Uh, why don't you go ahead and plug all of your sites and profiles so our listeners can uh, find you wherever on social media. Sure thing. Um, most of my social media is Arden Sirens, A-R-D-E-N-S-I-R-E-N-S. -E -E and uh, that's Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. And uh, for everything else, you can find me uh, at Arden Lee, A-R-D-E-N-L-E-I-G-H. Uh, just Google that. My blog will come up, uh, ardenlee.typepad.com. Uh, or uh, anywhere else you need to find me, you can just uh, Google that. Excellent. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. It was, it's always a fun time. Thanks for spending time with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. DC Detectives can be found on iTunes and Stitcher. To stay in the know, check out our Facebook, our Twitter, and our website. We shared drinks with the band, swapped stories, and waxed poetic about mad love well past last call. It was time for us to head back to the office. This case was closed the wolves had other places to howl. After so long on the road, from D.C. to Mexico, we needed to recenter, get back on track. We weren't sure where our next case would take us, but we knew we weren't going to get to it sitting around here. We said goodbyes, 
and headed back to familiar stomping grounds, hoping the Sandman would bring us a dream.